0: Section 1 of Lord Arthur Savile's Crime and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex Lau. Lord Arthur Savile's Crime and Other Stories by Oscar Wilde. Section 1. Chapters 1 and 2. OF LORD ARTHUR Savile's CRIME CHAPTER One. It was Lady Windermere's last reception before Easter, and Bentinck House was even more crowded than usual. Six cabinet ministers had come on from the speaker's levee in their stars and ribands. All the pretty women wore their smartest dresses, and at the end of the picture gallery stood the Princess Sophia of Karlsruhe. A heavy, tartar-looking lady with tiny black eyes and wonderful emeralds, talking bad French at the top of her voice, and laughing immoderately at everything that was said to her. It was certainly a wonderful medley of people. Gorgeous peeresses chatted affably to violent radicals. Popular preachers brushed coattails with eminent skeptics. A perfect bevy of bishops kept following a stout prima donna from room to room. On the staircase, stood several royal academicians disguised as artists. And it was said that at one time the supper room was absolutely crammed with geniuses. In fact, it was one of Lady Windermere's best nights, and the princess stayed till nearly half past eleven. As soon as she had gone, Lady Windermere returned to the picture gallery, where a celebrated political economist was solemnly explaining the scientific theory of music to an indignant virtuoso from hungary and began to talk to the duchess of paisley she looked wonderfully beautiful with her grand ivory throat her large blue forget-me-not eyes and her heavy coils of golden hair or purr they were not that pale straw colour that nowadays usurps the gracious name of gold but such gold as is woven into sunbeams or hidden in strange amber and they gave to her face Something of the frame of a saint, with not a little of the fascination of a sinner. She was a curious psychological study. Early in life, she had discovered the important truth that nothing looks so like innocence as an indiscretion, and by a series of reckless escapades, half of them were quite harmless. She had acquired all the privileges of a personality. She had more than once changed her husband, indeed. De Brett credits her with free marriages but as she had never changed her lover the world had long ago ceased to talk scandal about her she was now forty years of age childless and with that inordinate passion for pleasure which is the secret of remaining young suddenly she looked eagerly round the room and said in her clear contralto voice where is my curamantist? you're what gladys exclaimed the duchess "'giving an involuntary start. "'My curamantist, Duchess, "'I can't live without him at present.' "'Dear Gladys, you are always so original,' "'murmured the Duchess, "'trying to remember what a Chiromantist really was, "'and hoping it was not the same as a Chiropodist. "'He comes to see my hand twice a week regularly,' "'continued Lady Windermere, "'and is most interesting about it. "'Good heavens,' said the Duchess to herself, "'He is a sort of chiropodist, after all. "'How very dreadful. "'I hope he is a foreigner, at any rate. "'It wouldn't be quite so bad, then. "'I must certainly introduce him to you.' "'Introduce him?' cried the Duchess. "'You don't mean to say he is here?' "'And she began looking about "'for a small tortoise-shell fan "'and a very tattered lace shawl, "'so as to be ready to go at a moment's notice. "'Of course he is here.' I WOULD NOT DREAM OF GIVING A PARTY WITHOUT HIM. HE TELLS ME I HAVE A PURE PSYCHIC HAND, AND THAT IF MY thumb HAD BEEN THE LEAST LITTLE BIT SHORTER, I SHOULD HAVE BEEN A CONFIRMED PESSIMIST, AND GONE INTO A CONVENT. Oh, I SEE, said the Duchess, FEELING VERY MUCH RELIEVED. HE TELLS FORTUNES, I SUPPOSE. AND MISFORTUNES, TOO, ANSWERED LADY Windermere. ANY AMOUNT OF THEM. NEXT YEAR, FOR INSTANCE, I AM IN GREAT DANGER both by land and sea so i am going to live in a balloon and draw up my dinner in a basket every evening it is all written down on my little finger or on the palm of my hand i forget which but surely that is tempting providence gladys my dear duchess surely providence can resist temptation by this time i think everyone should have their hands told once a month so as to know what not to do of course One does it all the same, but it is so pleasant to be warned. Now, if someone doesn't go and fetch Mr. Podgers at once, I shall have to go myself. "'Let me go, Lady Windermere,' said a tall, handsome young man, who was standing by, listening to the conversation with an amused smile. "'Thanks so much, Lord Arthur, but I am afraid you wouldn't recognise him.' "'If he is as wonderful as you say, Lady Windermere, I couldn't well miss him.' Tell me what he is like, and I'll bring him to you at once. Well, he is not a bit like a curamantist. I mean, he is not mysterious, or esoteric, or romantic-looking. He is a little stout man with a funny bald head and great gold-rimmed spectacles. Something between a family doctor and a country attorney. I'm really very sorry, but it is not my fault. People are so annoying. "'All my pianists look exactly like poets, "'and all my poets look exactly like pianists. "'And I remember last season "'asking a most dreadful conspirator to dinner, "'a man who had blown up ever so many people "'and always wore a coat of mail "'and carried a dagger up his shirt-sleeve. "'And do you know that when he came "'he looked just like a nice old clergyman "'and cracked jokes all the evening? "'Of course, he was very amusing.' But I was awfully disappointed, and when I asked him about the coat of mail, he only laughed, and said it was far too cold to wear in England. Ah, here is Mr. Podgers. Now, Mr. Podgers, I want you to tell the Duchess of Paisley's hand. Duchess, you must take your glove off. No, not the left hand, the other. Dear Gladys, I really don't think it is quite right, said the Duchess, feebly unbuttoning a rather soiled kid-glove nothing interesting ever is said lady windermere on a fait le monde ainsi but i must introduce you duchess this is mr podgers my pet curamantist. mr podgers this is the duchess of paisley and if you say that she has a larger mountain of the moon than i have i will never believe in you again i am sure gladys there is nothing of the kind in my hand said the duchess gravely your grace is quite right said mr podgers glancing at a little fat hand with its short square fingers the mountain of the moon is not developed the line of life however is excellent kindly bend the wrist thank you three distinct lines on the russet. you will live to a great age duchess and be extremely happy ambition very moderate line of intellect not exaggerated line of heart now do be indiscreet mr podgers cried lady windermere nothing would give me greater pleasure said mr podgers bowing if the duchess ever had been but i am sorry to say that i see great permanence of affection combined with a strong sense of duty pray go on mr podgers said the duchess looking quite pleased economy is not the least of your grace's virtues continued mr podgers "'and Lady Windermere went off into fits of laughter. "'Economy is a very good thing,' remarked the Duchess complacently. "'When I married Paisley, he had eleven castles, "'and not a single house fit to live in. "'And now he has twelve houses, and not a single castle,' "'cried Lady Windermere. "'Well, my dear,' said the Duchess, "'I like comfort,' said Mr. Podgers, "'and modern improvements, "'and hot water laid on in every bedroom your grace is quite right comfort is the only thing our civilization can give us you have told the duchess's character admirably mr podgers and now you must tell lady flora's and in answer to a nod from the smiling hostess a tall girl with sandy scotch hair and high shoulder-blades stepped awkwardly from behind the sofa and held out a long bony hand with spatulate fingers ah a pianist i see said mr podgers an excellent pianist but perhaps hardly a musician very reserved very honest and with a great love of animals quite true exclaimed the duchess turning to lady windermere absolutely true flora keeps two dozen collie dogs at McCloskey and would turn her house into a menagerie if her father would let her well that is just what i do with my house every thursday evening cried lady windermere laughing only i like lions better than collie dogs your one mistake lady windermere said mr podgers with a pompous bow if a woman can't make her mistakes charming she is only a female was the answer but you must read some more hands for us come said Thomas. show mr podgers yours and a genial-looking old gentleman in a white waistcoat came forward and held out a thick rugged hand with a very long third finger An adventurous nature, four long voyages in the past and one to come, been shipwrecked three times, no, only twice, but in danger of a shipwreck on your next journey. A strong conservative, very punctual, and with a passion for collecting curiosities. Had a severe illness between the ages of 16 and 18. Was left a fortune when about 30. Great aversion to cats and radicals extraordinary exclaimed sir thomas you must really tell my wife's hand too your second wife's said mr podgers quietly still keeping sir thomas's hand in his your second wife's i shall be charmed but lady marvel a melancholy-looking woman with brown hair and sentimental eyelashes entirely declined to have her past or her future exposed and nothing that lady windermere could do would induce monsieur de the Russian ambassador, even to take his gloves off. In fact, many people seemed afraid to face the odd little man with his stereotyped smile, his gold spectacles, and his bright beady eyes. And when he told poor Lady Fermor right out before everyone that she did not care a bit for music, but was extremely fond of musicians, it was generally felt that chiromancy was a most dangerous science, and one that ought not to be encouraged except in a -a tete-a-tete lord arthur savile however who did not know anything about lady firmer's unfortunate story and who had been watching mr podgers with a great deal of interest was filled with an immense curiosity to have his own hand read and feeling somewhat shy about putting himself forward crossed over the room to where lady windermere was sitting and with a charming blush asked her if she thought mr podgers would mind of course he won't mind said lady windermere that is what he is here for all my lions lord arthur are performing lions and jump through hoops whenever i ask them but i must warn you beforehand that i shall tell Sybil everything she is coming to lunch with me tomorrow to talk about bonnets and if mr podgers finds out that you have a bad temper or a tendency to gout or a wife living in bayswater I shall certainly let her know all about it lord arthur smiled and shook his head i am not afraid he answered sibyl knows me as well as i know her ah i am a little sorry to hear you say that the proper basis for marriage is a mutual misunderstanding no i am not at all cynical i have merely got experience which however is very much the same thing "'Mr. Podgers, Lord Arthur Savile is dying to have his hand read. "'Don't tell him that he is engaged to one of the most beautiful girls in London, "'because that appeared in the Morning Post a month ago. "'Dear Lady Windermere,' cried the Marchioness of Jedburgh, "'do let Mr. Podgers stay here a little longer. "'He has just told me I should go on the stage, and I am so interested.' "'If he has told you that, Lady Jedburgh, I shall certainly take him away.' "'Come over at once, Mr. Podgers, and read Lord Arthur's hand.' "'Well,' said Lady Jedburgh, making a little moo as she rose from the sofa, "'if I am not to be allowed to go on a stage, "'I must be allowed to be part of the audience at any rate.' "'Of course, we are all going to be part of the audience,' said Lady Windermere. "'And now, Mr. Podgers, be sure and tell us something nice. "'Lord Arthur is one of my special favourites. But when Mr. Podgers saw Lord Arthur's hand, he grew curiously pale, and said nothing. A shudder seemed to pass through him, and his great bushy eyebrows twitched convulsively in an odd, irritating way they had when he was puzzled. Then some huge beads of perspiration broke out on his yellow forehead like a poisonous dew, and his fat fingers grew cold and clammy. Lord Arthur... Did not fail to notice these strange signs of agitation for the first time in his life he himself felt fear his impulse was to rush from the room but he restrained himself it was better to know the worst whatever it was than to be left in this hideous uncertainty i am waiting mr podgers he said we are all waiting cried lady windermere in her quick impatient manner but the chiaromantist made no reply. "'I believe Arthur is going on the stage,' said Lady Jedburgh, "'and that, after your scolding, Mr. Podgers is afraid to tell him so.' Suddenly Mr. Podgers dropped Lord Arthur's right hand and seized hold of his left, bending down so low to examine it that the gold rims of his spectacles seemed almost to touch the palm. For a moment his face became a white mask of horror.' but he soon recovered his sang-froid, and, looking up at Lady Windermere, said with a forced smile, "'It is the hand of a charming young man.' "'Of course it is,' answered Lady Windermere. "'But will he be a charming husband? That is what I want to know.' "'All charming young men are,' said Mr. Podgers. "'I don't think a husband should be too fascinating,' murmured Lady Jadber, pensively. "'It is so dangerous my dear child they never are too fascinating cried lady windermere but what i want are details details are the only things that interest what is going to happen to lord arthur well within the next few months lord arthur will go a voyage oh yes his honeymoon of course and lose a relative not his sister i hope said lady jedburgh in a piteous tone of voice certainly not his sister answered mr podgers with a deprecating wave of the hand a distant relative merely well i am dreadfully disappointed said lady windermere i have absolutely nothing to tell sybil to-morrow no one cares about distant relatives nowadays they went out of fashion years ago however i suppose she had better have a black silk by her "'It always does for church, you know. "'And now let us go to supper. "'They are sure to have eaten everything up, "'but we may find some hot soup. "'Francois used to make excellent soup once, "'but he is so agitated about politics at present "'that I never feel quite certain about him. "'I do wish General Boulanger would keep quiet. "'Duchess, I am sure you are tired.' "'Not at all, dear Gladys.' "'answered the Duchess, waddling towards the door. "'I have enjoyed myself immensely, "'and the chiropodist, I mean the chiromantist "'is most interesting. "'Flora, where can my tortoise-shell fan be? "'Oh, thank you, Sir Thomas, so much. "'And my lace shawl, Flora? "'Oh, thank you, Sir Thomas. "'Very kind, I'm sure.' "'And the worthy creature finally managed to get downstairs "'without dropping her scent-bottle more than twice. "'All this time, Lord Arthur Savile, had remained standing by the fireplace with the same feeling of dread over him the same sickening sense of coming evil he smiled sadly at his sister as she swept past him on lord plymdale's arm looking lovely in her pink brocade and pearls and he hardly heard lady windermere when she called to him to follow her he thought of Sybil merton and the idea that anything could come between them made his eyes dim with tears looking at him One would have said that Nemesis had stolen the shield of Pallas and shown him the Gorgon's head. He seemed turned to stone, and his face was like marble in its melancholy. He had lived the delicate and luxurious life of a young man of birth and fortune, a life exquisite in its freedom from sordid care, its beautiful boyish insouciance, and now for the first time he became conscious of the terrible mystery of destiny. Of the awful meaning of doom how mad and monstrous it all seemed could it be that written on his hand in characters that he could not read himself but that another could decipher was some fearful secret of sin some blood-red sign of crime was there no escape possible were we no better than chessmen moved by an unseen power vessels the potter fashions at his fancy for honour or for shame His reason revolted against it, and yet he felt that some tragedy was hanging over him, and that he had been suddenly called upon to bear an intolerable burden. Actors are so fortunate, they can choose whether they will appear in tragedy or in comedy, whether they will suffer or make merry, laugh or shed tears, but in real life it is different. Most men and women are forced to perform parts for which they have no qualifications. Our Guildensterns play hamlets for us, and our hamlets have the jest like Prince Hal. The world is a stage, but the play is badly cast. Suddenly Mr. Pudgers entered the room. When he saw Lord Arthur, he started, and his coarse, fat face became a sort of greenish-yellow colour. The two men's eyes met, and for a moment there was silence. The Duchess has left one of her gloves here, Lord Arthur. "'and has asked me to bring it to her,' said Mr. Podgers, finally. "'Ah, I see it on the sofa. Good evening.' "'Mr. Podgers, I must insist on your giving me a straightforward answer to a question I am going to put to you.' "'Another time, Lord Arthur. But the Duchess is anxious. I am afraid I must go.' "'You shall not go. The Duchess is in no hurry.' "'Ladies should not be kept waiting, Lord Arthur,' said Mr. Podgers, with his sickly smile. The fair sex is apt to be impatient. Lord Arthur's finely chiseled lips curled in petulant disdain. The poor duchess seemed to him of very little importance at that moment. He walked across the room to where Mr. Podgers was standing, and held his hand out. "'Tell me what you saw there,' he said. "'Tell me the truth. I must know it. I am not a child.' Mr. Podger's eyes blinked behind his gold-rimmed spectacles. "'and he moved uneasily from one foot to the other, "'while his fingers played nervously with a flash-watch chain. "'What makes you think that I saw anything in your hand, Lord Arthur, "'more than I told you?' "'I know you did, and I insist on your telling me what it was. "'I will pay you. I will give you a cheque for a hundred pounds.' "'The green eyes flashed for a moment, and then became dull again. Guineas, said Mr. Podgers, at last in a low voice, Certainly, I will send you a cheque to morrow. What is your club? I have no club. That is to say, not just at present. My address is-but allow me to give you my card. And producing a bit of gilt-edged pasteboard from his waistcoat pocket, Mr. Podgers handed it with a low bow to Lord Arthur, who read on it: Mr. Septimus R. Podgers, professional curamantist one hundred and three A, West Moon Street. My hours are from ten to four. "'murmured Mr. Podgers mechanically, "'and I make a reduction for families.' "'Be quick,' cried Lord Arthur, "'looking very pale and holding his hand out.' "'Mr. Podgers glanced nervously round "'and drew the heavy portiere across the door. "'It will take a little time, Lord Arthur. "'You had better sit down.' "'Be quick, sir,' cried Lord Arthur again, "'stamping his foot angrily on the polished floor. "'Mr. Podgers smiled,' drew from his breast-pocket a small magnifying glass, and wiped it carefully with his handkerchief. "'I am quite ready,' he said. Chapter 2 Ten minutes later, with face blanched by terror and eyes wild with grief, Lord Arthur Seville rushed from Bentinck House, crushing his way through the crowd of fur-coated footmen that stood round a large striped awning, and seemed not to see or hear anything. The night was bitter cold, and the gas lamps round the square flared and flickered in the keen wind, but his hands were hot with fever, and his forehead burned like fire. On and on he went, almost with the gait of a drunken man. A policeman looked curiously at him as he passed, and a beggar, who slouched from an archway to ask for alms, grew frightened, seeing misery greater than his own. Once he stopped under a lamp and looked at his hands. He thought he could detect the stain of blood already upon them, and a faint cry broke from his trembling lips. Murder! That is what the Kyramantist had seen there. Murder! The very night seemed to know it, and the desolate wind to howl it in his ear. The dark corners of the streets were full of it. It grinned at him from the roofs of the houses. First he came to the park whose sombre woodland seemed to fascinate him. He leaned wearily up against the railings, cooling his brow against the wet metal, and listening to the tremulous silence of the trees. "'Murder! murder!' he kept repeating, as though iteration could dim the horror of the word. The sound of his own voice made him shudder. Yet he almost hoped that Echo might hear him and wake the slumbering city, from its dreams he felt a mad desire to stop the casual passer-by and tell him everything then he wandered across oxford street into narrow shameful alleys two women with painted faces mocked at him as he went by from a dark courtyard came a sound of oaths and blows followed by shrill screams and huddled upon a damp doorstep he saw the crook-backed forms of poverty and eld a strange pity came over him. Were these children of sin and misery predestined to their end, as he to his? Were they, like him, merely the puppets of a monstrous show? And yet it was not the mystery, but the comedy of suffering that struck him. Its absolute uselessness, its grotesque want of meaning, how incoherent everything seemed! How lacking in all harmony, he was amazed at the discord between the shallow optimism of the day and the real facts of existence. He was still very young. After a time he found himself in front of Marie LeBone Church. The silent roadway looked like a long riband of polished silver, flecked here and there by the dark arabesques of waving shadows. Far into the distance curved the line of flickering gas lamps and outside a walled-in house stood a solitary hansom, the driver asleep inside. He walked hastily in the direction of Portland Place, now and then looking round, as though he feared that he was being followed. At the corner of Rich Street stood two men, reading a small bill upon a hoarding. An odd feeling of curiosity stirred him, and he crossed over. As he came near, the word murder printed in black letters, met his eye. He started, and a deep flush came into his cheek. It was an advertisement, offering a reward for any information, leading to the arrest of a man of medium height, between thirty and forty years of age, wearing a billycock hat, a black coat, and check trousers, with a scar upon his right cheek. He read it over and over again, and wondered if the wretched man would be caught and how he had been scarred perhaps some day his own name might be placarded on the walls of london some day perhaps a price would be set on his head also the thought made him sick with horror he turned on his heel and hurried on into the night where he went he hardly knew he had a dim memory of wandering through a labyrinth of sordid houses of being lost in a giant web of sombre streets and it was bright dawn when he found himself at last in piccadilly circus as he strolled home towards belgrave square he met the great wagons on their way to covent garden the white smocked carters with their pleasant sunburnt faces and coarse curly hair strode sturdily on cracking their whips and calling out now and then to each other on the back of a huge grey horse the leader of a jangling team sat a chubby boy with a bunch of primroses in his battered hat keeping tight hold of the mane with his little hands and laughing and the great piles of vegetables looked like masses of jade against the morning sky like masses of green jade against the pink petals of some marvellous rose lord arthur felt curiously affected he could not tell why there was something in the dawn's delicate loveliness THAT SEEMED TO HIM INEXPRESSIBLY PATHETIC, AND HE thought OF ALL THE DAYS THAT BREAK IN BEAUTY, AND THAT SET IN STORM. THESE RUSTICS, TOO, WITH THEIR ROUGH, GOOD-HUMORED VOICES, AND THEIR NONCHALANT WAYS, WHAT A STRANGE LONDON THEY SAW, A LONDON, FREE FROM THE SIN OF NIGHT, AND THE SMOKE OF DAY, A pallid, GHOST-LIKE CITY, A DESOLATE TOWN OF TOMBS he wondered what they thought of it, and whether they knew anything of its splendor and its shame, of its fierce, fiery-colored joys, and its horrible hunger, of all it makes and mars from morn to eve. Probably it was to them merely a mart where they bought their fruits to sell, and where they tarried for a few hours at most, leaving the streets still silent, the houses still asleep. It gave him pleasure to watch them as they went by, rude as they were, with their heavy, hobnailed shoes, and their awkward gait, they brought a little of a ready with them. He felt that they had lived with nature, and that she had taught them peace. He envied them all that they did not know. By the time he had reached Belgrave Square, the sky was a faint blue, and the birds were beginning to twitter in the gardens. End of Section 1 Reading by Alex Lau www.twitter.com slash Alex of the Day